uh, just a couple items of business. I want to um, I want to embarrass somebody. Uh, very good friend. Yes, it is your husband and you. I want to embarrass. Uh, my very good friend, uh, Pastor Dwayne Smith, is here this morning with his wife. He's turning red right now. Um, he's here with his uh, beautiful daughters, Sierra and Olivia. Uh, Dwayne is the pastor of the church that we routinely invade their, um, their skim camp ministry in the summer. Uh, and so he's here this morning. Uh, I, am, I am particularly honored, but also filled with fear when pastors have a Sunday off and they, they choose to come here, you know, um, because... You know, one in one sense you've got to measure up, but in another sense you don't want to you don't want to make things too different. You know, I mean you just so. In any case, he's here this morning. If you guys would uh, make it make it a point to greet him and encourage him, they've been a blessing to our church, um, the 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 ministry of Sussex County Bible Church. And if you are up in Sussex County on a Sunday morning, uh, this is a church that, as Mike just said about uh, the the John Piper book, uh, they are safe. They are not weird. Uh, they preach the gospel, good brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, this morning, um, when, when we turn to our text and we pray, we're going to also pray for um, Pinehurst Elementary School. We, I was approached by a, a local community group that, that's trying to organize prayer for local schools. And so uh, on occasion, we're going to lift up Pinehurst publicly. That's the school that we've been asked to adopt and to pray for. And so we'll be praying for administration and teachers and, and, uh, and different uh, areas. Um, and I'll justify that a little bit later in my message. And hopefully when I, when I read the text, you'll be like, yes, that's why we pray uh, for the school. Um, we're going to read Acts chapter 9. If you turn there in your Bible to uh, verse 31, it's going to go quick. Uh, just one verse this morning. And, uh, and then we will pray and turn to the explanation of God's word. Uh, the scriptures say in Acts chapter 9, verse 31... So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to hear this word from your word. When you speak, Lord, we ought to listen because you speak in a way that's authoritative you speak without error. You speak uh, in, in a way in which is intelligible to us and clear. And when you speak, Lord, it is sufficient for your people. We live and breathe and move and have our being in you. We exist as the people of God by your grace and not because of anything that we've done. You've saved us, Lord, through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that blessing. We pray that we would not, having received the gift, turn away from you in ignorance or in rebellion and then decide how it is that we are going to serve you. Instead, may we, hearing your word, be built up in our faith, the faith which your son Jesus authored by going to the cross, taking our sins upon himself, paying the price for our guilt, and having given us his righteousness, may we, by faith, turn and live for you. 
And may we, as we build our lives on your word, may we be part of the multiplication of the church. Lord, that is what you're doing in the world, working through your church, because that's what you are building, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for that knowledge. We pray that we would not lay hold of false gospels, false hopes for the world, but that, may, that we would pour ourselves into that which you have placed your spirit in, the church. Father, this morning I, I pray for my brothers and sisters, for those who, who hear this word as they digest it and chew on it, Father. I pray that none would feel condemnation, but that they would feel liberty within the Lord. I pray that, that they would see perhaps where they are in terms of their maturity and, and without feeling condemnation, identify ways in which they should grow. And then be encouraged that there is a road forward and that you've called us to maturity and that no man or woman is complete until they see your face. And yet the church is called to present each and every one complete in Christ. And that ought to be the purpose for which we labor. Father, this morning we are mindful of the many millions, the billions of the world who do not have access to the gospel. And we pray that as you shape us and change us and transform us as a church, we pray that our hearts would be broken for those who do not know your word, and we would be strengthened in our resolve to go and to take the gospel to them. We also lift up our local school, Lord Pinehurst Elementary, and we pray, Father, that your will would be done through the administration of that school. Father, you possess the human heart, and you can turn it wherever you will scripture says. Your desire is that all men come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. That's what the book of Timothy says. And so we ask, Father, that by your grace, that there would be gospel opportunity at that school for teachers, through teachers, for students and through students, for the administration of those schools and through the administration of them. In a culture where it is illegal, in some sense, to acknowledge your presence, make yourself known, Lord Jesus. We ask all this, Lord, in the precious and sweet name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray the, your blessing on us as we sit under the explanation of your word. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we are in Acts chapter 9. Uh, we, have, we have journeyed text by text to this point, and we come to this point where we're just going to slice off a small bit of the text uh, and, and focus on that this morning as we consider the, the state of the church in 2013. This is an, a tradition that we have every year. I, uh, at some point, I pick the appropriate text and say, this is the state of the church text, and so here we are uh, this morning to, to, to focus on where we are as a church, uh, where the church is in the world. One more time, Acts 9, verse 31, because it kind of went by in a flash. Uh, don't expect that next week, and then especially not the week following, where we'll do 48 verses in one Sunday in Acts chapter 10. Um, 
Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the third of the progress reports in the book of Acts. You are familiar with some of them if you've read through the book before. Um, we, we find one in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And then there is uh, more discussion of the state of the church. But then it says that they were praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so we see the gospel planted in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we find another progress report. It says, the word of God continue to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so we see the gospel uh, beginning to spread out from Jerusalem, and, and the church itself is not just growing in its number of believers, but those who are committed to Christ uh, committed to, to living out a radical call to follow Jesus, that number is multiplying. And when we come to chapter 9, verse 31, we see now the church itself is beginning to multiply. The, the story of the book of Acts is the story of the birth of the church, yes, and the growth of the church, but it's also the, the, the story of how the church comes and spreads in particular ways. We've seen the gospel start by reaching the people whom God called to himself, the Jews. And then we see the gospel spread out to Samaria, and we've seen a single Gentile saved. We are on the verge of, there's a, there's a hinge that, that the book turns on in Acts chapter 9. And we saw this in the life of, of Saul, that he's going to stand before kings. He's going to stand before Gentiles and the children of Israel. And so we're going, to, we're going to see the gospel move beyond the Jewish people, beyond the Samaritans, out into the Gentile world in a, in a mighty way. But first, Luke updates us. But the church had peace, and it was being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And in those conditions they multiplied. Um, the structure of this morning's message is um, going to be a, a little bit odd, perhaps. Um, I, on, on Friday, I was in New Jersey at the funeral of a, of a brother who was 89 years old in the Lord. He was an elder in the church in Union, uh, and just an absolute blessing to me. This is the man who shared the gospel with my father. Uh, and so in, in some sense, very much a, a spiritual grandfather to me. Um, yet at the same time, uh, an example of a, of a brother uh, in Christ who I ministered with for many years. Um, and, and so he's got me thinking. Uh, the life of Rudin Schober has me thinking about how the church grows and multiplies. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce the, the teaching portion by saying this. We're going to notice some things in this text that's probably about as inelegant as it can be said. Uh, I also got to spend some time with my mentor, Mike Greiner, who's been in ministry for, for
for 15 years now. Uh, Rudy Schober and I were on the team that hired him. Uh, Mike's preaching method basically boils down to this. Break all the rules that you've been taught about preaching. Um, and so uh, we're going to see some stuff in our text this morning. This is my little tribute to my mentor here. Um, notice that the church says, or the, the scripture says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, we've got these regions listed, it says that they had peace. The church had peace. As I, was, as I was starting to look at this text, and one of the first things that I'll do, this is a great discipline for studying your Bible, by the way, is I'll just, I'll take the English text, and I just write it out by hand. That may sound simple, but it, when, when, when you do that, many times you're like, oh look, I never saw that word before. Well, you know, when we, when we breeze through it, uh, through the text, and we're like, okay, got to get my three readings done, three readings a day, five on weekends, through the Bible in the whole year, you know, so a lot of times you miss stuff. So I'm writing, so the church throughout all Judea and and had peace. Peace? It's interesting. Peace. The church had peace. Stephen is dead, right? We saw that happen in, in Acts chapter 7. Uh, the church is scattered. We saw that in Acts chapter 8. Saul was rampaging, and then Jesus came down and confronted Saul and converted him, and he, he was saved, and, and then now everybody's trying to kill him. That's peace. It's funny, I thought. Then it strikes me that peace is a matter of perspective sometimes. I mean, folks, if somebody from our church went to the city authorities, and were sharing the gospel, and the, the city council rose up and killed him. And then our church had to scatter and run out of Salisbury. Uh, but then the person who, 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 who was a key in, in killing that leader from our church became converted, and then everybody was trying to kill them, and that leader was then back among us. And, and there was all this stress and struggle. I doubt we would define that as peace. We would consider that in our culture massive persecution, wouldn't we? That would be the definition of, 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 of extreme danger in the church. The greatest persecution against the church perhaps uh, uh, occurring in this day and age and perhaps in, in the history of the United States. But peace is a matter of perspective. This is why in the book of Proverbs, the writer of chapter 30, says, Two things I ask of you, speaking to the Lord. He says, Deny them not to me before I die. This is interesting. A guy who's writing the Bible gets an opportunity to, to list his prayer requests in there, and, and, and God is going to honor them. This is what he, what he prays. He says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor Riches, Boy, that's an American prayer, huh? God, please don't make me rich. No, that's not the way we think at all. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me. He says, God, give me what I need, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Boy, is that our culture or what? You know, we've, we, can, we can dial on the phone, right, and, or, or go on the internet and punch in, www.sendmepizza.com and somebody will show up at your house with pizza and you can watch movies. You never need to see another human being in your life if you want. We're, we're full of entertainment. Is it any wonder that our culture is saying, who is the Lord? Why do we need God in our culture when we can order pizza off a website? 
Give me neither poverty nor riches. Riches are perhaps one of our greatest enemies. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He says, essentially, keep me dependent on you, Lord. Not so poor that I would, I would think ill of you. Not so rich that I don't think of you at all. Could it be that in our richness is the explanation for the lack of rigorous discipleship in the American church? How many times have you heard a believer say to you in the midst of an illness or a struggle or a family conflict, I don't know why God is letting this happen to me, right? That's because we're, we're doing so well in our culture, we never hardly get sick. It's very rare that someone get ill. It's very rare that we miss a meal. And then when we miss a meal or get sick or have a conflict, we're like, why is all this trouble coming on me? And yet we saw this morning that there are people in the world who who live in five-by-eight houses, right? Who have nothing. And when our comfort is challenged, we despair. Our richness could be our curse. And that's why when we look at the early church, if we're honest, we we say the church had peace. It's not peace. It is for them. They, They reached a point where they were able to fly under the radar in the culture and were able to do the work of the church able to to do the work, the sharing of the gospel, without open hostilities. They walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and in that way they multiplied. Look at what Paul prays in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. That includes people on the school board and those who who run the government schools that our children attend. We ought to pray for those people. Why? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray for our rulers over us. Why? So they will ignore us and leave us alone, and we can live godly lives full of dignity that are quiet and peaceful, and we can be about our work. Something that struck me from the life of Rudy Schober as I consider that peace is a matter of perspective, Rudy would get up, whether there had been a a conflict in the church or there had been a particularly nasty business meeting or whether the the leadership of the church was kind of cranky and not getting along or whether we'd, we'd had a bad day or whether he was struggling and he would begin his prayers like this many times. He would say, Lord, we come thankful hearts. Over and over and over again, he said, Lord, we come with thankful hearts, whether our hands are full as a church or whether they are empty, whether we are in a time of peace or a time of persecution, we should realize that we deserve nothing from God, that God, everything that he gives us, he gives to repentant sinners and he gives it by his grace because He's kind, not because we are deserving. When the church enjoys a time of peace, we ought to say, thank you, Jesus, and get to work, not say, what is there to watch on TV? 
Now, you can go home and watch a little TV. That's fine. I watch a little TV every now and again. I like to read a, read a book. But, but at some point, we ought to, we ought to say, let's, let's take our hearts and minds off of being comfortable and get about the mission that Jesus has called us to. The church was scattered in persecution and spread. And then in a time of peace, it multiplied. Luke's perspective is that both are good. The time of persecution was good because they scattered. The time of peace was good because they multiplied. Whichever time we find ourselves in, we ought to come with thankful hearts. Second thing to notice, my preaching professor said, uh, of all the words in the English language you could use, so many preachers settle on the nebulous word things. Um, a little tribute to my, my mentor here uh, this morning, breaking all the rules. The second thing that we notice uh, is that the church was being built up. It was being built up. God grows the church. This is a passive verb here. It is, it is that this thing is being done to the church. The church was being built up. Let us, with our great worship band, right, and godly church leadership, and preaching, and scriptures, and chairs, and all the things that we have at our disposal in the American church, let us not make the mistake of thinking that we grow the church. Now, this doesn't mean every time somebody who says, I want to be a pastor, I want to be a church planter, this doesn't mean you should correct them. They say, I want to plant a church. Don't say things like, you can't plant a church, only God plants a church. You know, I mean, if, if he goes on and on and on and on and on, and he's like, me, 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 you know, correct him at some point and say, you know, Jesus is involved here too, and if, you, if you're not building everything on him, it's pointless. God grows the church. God is the one who grows the church. This is perhaps Jesus' point in Mark chapter 4, when he tells a parable. Verse 26, it says, And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Okay? Man goes out into a field, chucks a bunch of seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. How does the kingdom spread? How, how does it make sense that the kingdom grows in a time of peace and it grows in a time of persecution? How, how does that work? Not really sure. Not really sure. Our responsibility is to scatter the seed and when the grain looks ripe, to put in the sickle. God is the one who does the growing. The earth does it somehow, verse 28 says. Verse 27 says, the man doesn't know how it works. Paul will later say in, in, in rebuking some of his uh, disciples for siding with Apollos or siding with Peter and saying we're their disciples, not Paul's disciples, or we're disciples of Jesus. When he sees all these different competitive groups fighting, he says, look, what in the world is Paul and what is Apollos? Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. God's the one who grows the church. It's nice to hear that it was a good sermon. 
And I'm sure your small group leader appreciates when you tell him that it was a good message or that the study benefited him. Or when you meet with someone for one-on-one discipleship and you say, I really appreciate this time. That's good to say that. But understand, when the word is present and you are growing, it is because God, through his spirit, is growing you by the power of the spirit. That's how the church grows. The church was being built up. Next, notice this thing. The church multiplied beyond simple addition. The church is not just growing in size here, but it's extending outward in localized mission. It's not just adding more seed to the seed barn at this time. It's not just that the disciples were growing in number or that the number of disciples were growing, but that they were adding locations, adding new churches. The church was stretching beyond just what local leadership could manage. It was spreading beyond homes, out of cities, out into regions, and it was all this universal church, but the church was expanding beyond just a single place and a single set of leadership. The goal of missions for every single Christian ought to be to see people impacted with the message of the gospel and churches multiplied. We're not just interested in sharing the gospel with someone on the street and handing them a tract, right? That's important. Sharing the gospel with somebody, whether it's over coffee or in your living room or or just some random person that you meet, that ought to be our focus, yes. But connecting that person back up to a local body of believers, starting churches is the focus of missions. I'm proud of our local Baptist Association in the way that we have steadily, slowly perhaps, but and, and through some difficulty, settled on a mission of healthy churches planting healthy churches together. God's desire and God's plan A in the world is the church. And there's no plan B. You might say, what about the parachurch? You know, what, what, about, what about Campus Crusade? What about focus on the family? What about, yes, these things are good. They're good. But they're not the church. They're not the church. The church is where God's word is proclaimed, where we celebrate the sacraments. It's where church discipline is administered, where people are encouraged forward in their holiness. The church is also where you meet and have fellowship with people who are older than you and people who are younger than you and people are getting married and and people are dying and we're putting them in the ground and we worship and, and we sorrow together and we experience joy together and we work through our differences together. That's God's plan. But don't be fooled based on what I've just said about God growing the church and and God, that being his primary plan, and he's the one who does it through the power of his spirit, don't let that fool you into thinking this is a simple matter of sovereignty. This is not a let go and let God and let's see what he does. There's a divine partnership here. 
That to me is one of the most amazing facts of the gospel is that God doesn't just do this all himself. Even though he's the active energetic force in the church, he chooses to work through people, sinful, fallen yet redeemed people. What's Jesus' mission in the world? Matthew 16, 18, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's Jesus' mission in the world. But then he gives the church its mission and says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. How, how does the church, which is being built up, how, how do we engage what God is doing so that we multiply? I think that, that the, the way we do that is there's, there's, there's two expressions here in this passage. One is we walk in the fear of the Lord. Walking in the fear of the Lord, right? Famous verse, people know this, James 1.27, what is the mission of the church? People will be like, we need to do more of this. It's just true. Visiting widows and orphans in their distress. Yes, agreed. But the second part of that verse that's often forgotten is this part. Keeping oneself unstained from the world. We're to walk in the fear of the Lord. Not a, a servile fear, not I'm afraid that God is going to destroy me, but a respect that's based on love. A reverent devotion. A desire not to displease our Father who's been kind and gracious to us. A fear that's built on gospel truths. Why, Joseph says, would I do this wicked thing with Potiphar's wife and sin against my God? I love my God too much to sin against him. We fear breaking our fellowship with God, even though we know that our relationship cannot be destroyed. Guilt is a horrible motivator, brothers and sisters. It's terrible. When you do things just because you feel guilty, you don't feel good doing them. But when you know that God loves you, and he's given you the righteousness of Christ, and he's called you to pursue him in radical devotion, and you understand that you cannot mess it up, he loves you that much that makes it so much easier just to throw your life into it. None of us are experts at this. The good news is, is that God will be with us as we do it, no matter what. And so we walk in the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. And we say, okay, we're going we're gonna to seek to live out his commandments, knowing that if we fail and mess up, there is a way to be restored. The church is there to point it out and say, hey, you're messing up. Get back on the path. And we're like, okay, let's, let's do that. Or, and, or we, can, we can say, you know what? I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. How do I, how do I grow? And, and, and our brothers and sisters in Christ will say, try this. And we will then try that. And, and, and we'll be built up. We walk in the fear of the Lord, keeping in the front of our hearts and minds that we want to honor him. We also say that when it comes to building our church, we're not going to make it up. We're, we're not going to say, hey, what's working somewhere else? And let's just buy some stuff from them, and we'll, we'll come in and we'll paint the walls of the church a different color. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start uh, dressing up like superheroes or um, you know, doing all kinds of crazy stuff that churches do to draw a crowd, because that'll build a church, as if a church is just a, a giant pile of people. 
You can have a, a huge bunch of people and it still not be a church. Even if there's a cross out in front of the building. We need to remember that God has a vision. Revelation 21 and 22, God is building a city and he will be its light and his spirit will be in the people who are there and he will be with them and they will be his people and he will be their God. His mission is to build the church to make disciples. And his method is to show grace and kindness and love in the gospel, showing how he overcomes the individual problem of our sin and calling us then to enter into fellowship and community with him and to love one another. Our method for making disciples ought to be love. This means we lovingly correct, we lovingly encourage each other. At times saying, hey, you know what? You're not acting like a believer. And then we're like, what do you mean? How, you can't judge me. And it's like, yes, I judge you in love. Shape up. Lie right. Okay. Right? There, there are all these commands. Encourage one another. Mourn with one another. Stir one another up to good deeds. That's the... The, the fellowship and the family that we have. That's walking in the fear of the Lord is saying that the commands of God, the principles of the scriptures are more important than just feeling good all the time. We walk in reverent devotion. I think about that power box in my house, right? I love electricity. I do. I love it. I'm like, plug in my laptop. Go on Facebook. Yes. Talk about Downton Abbey, which is coming on tonight, right? I mean, that's, I love electricity. But you know what I don't do because I'm afraid of electricity? I don't just go open up the, the, the power wires and just start poking around in there. Because I know that I will meet Jesus very fast. And that might be a good thing, but my children and my wife will be sad. Hopefully you guys would be sad too. You show reverential devotion and respect. God's not a, a toy to be played with. He's a sovereign, holy king. We ought to build our life on his truths and respect him. We walk in the fear of the Lord. We also ought to walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I believe one of the most significant discoveries that I've made in my Christian life is found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says, be strong. He tells believers, be strong. Be strong. But then we, we, we tend to, if we, if we hear that and we leave it at just that, we're like, okay, I need to do this. I need to live my Christian life myself. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, how do I do that? How do I, how do I be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might? Paul then goes on in Ephesians 6, 16. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. God has given us armor to wear. He's given us his word to memorize and to fight battles with. This is one of the reasons, brothers and sisters, why we do fighter verses every week and why you ought to be memorizing them. You ought to be hiding God's word in your heart, one, so that you might not sin against him, right? 
but also so that when temptation and trial come against you and the Holy Spirit who is in you and who desires to make you strong and you are called by God to be strong in him and in the strength of his might so that the Spirit has something to lay hold of and fight battles with. So that you can say, though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And therefore, I'm not going to sin against him in this way, though I have the opportunity. I'm not going to engage this illicit desire. I'm not going to depart from God and, and worship the idol of myself. I thank God for my brother Rudy Schober, who's with the Lord. 89 years, he did not become a Christian until he was in his 40s. And he said that he wasted the first half of his life, but he, he believed the promise of God when despair would overcome him about how he squandered the life that God gave him, the promise that God would give back the years and redeem them. He believed that and he lived it. This is a man who was impressive, not because he was impressive, but because even though he was amazingly successful, it seemed like in everything that he did, he did not believe it was of himself. He hung on God's word. And every single time he shared a sermon, he would say, isn't it wonderful that we have God's word? I look back and I say to myself, where and yes, some of it is from theologians and from brother pastors and from reading the word myself. Where did this value come from? Where was I taught that we're to be totally devoted to God's word and, and not, to, not to turn to the right or the left, but to say, what does it say? What does it mean? Not what does it mean to me? Not what can I make it say? But what is God saying to me? And then how ought that to change my life? And I think it came from this man who led the church for years. That was the simple obedience of doing what he already knew. That's wisdom. The church walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit encouraged them. It gave them comfort when circumstances were bad, and it encouraged them to do the right thing and to step out in faith, no matter what the situation. That's the real meaning of comfort. Comfort does not mean Linus's blue blankie in Bible terms. The outward, fourth thing, the outward condition of the church was a result of their inner condition. The peace and growth of the church was a blessing of God. But part of the reason they multiplied was the smile of God on reverential lives that leaned on the Holy Spirit. Now, um, I've got about 10 minutes. I may take just a little bit more, but I want to talk about us, Harvest. If you're a guest here, first-time visitor, this is when I, when, I, when I push the limits of what it means to be an expositional sermon, okay? Expositional sermon over relevant personal application to this church in its particular place in 2013 begins here. Uh, we, I believe, at this church have learned the lesson. Uh, leadership has learned it. Institutionally, we've learned it in our ministries of being strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We've, we've thrown away focus on crowds, on fads, on hype, 
on programs, and we've said we're going to build our church on God's word. And if that's not popular, we're not going to be rude about it, but we're not going to feel like failures if, if sometimes people don't come back because they don't like what God's word has to say about how to live. We've learned that lesson, I believe, but we're called to excel, excel still more. We're called to strive within the power of God as he works in the church. Look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. He talks about his appointment as an apostle, okay? To them, this is to the Gentiles, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. That's the mystery that he preaches and teaches as an apostle. In the Bible, a, a mystery is not go get um, the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, Scooby-Doo and his friends to come and solve the mystery. The mystery is something that has been solved, right? Okay, so the mystery is laid plain. To, him, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in us. That's the hope that we have that one day we'll stand before God. And when he says, why are you here? If he asks a question like that, I think he knows why we're there. We're, we're going to say, I've got Jesus in me, and that cancels out all my unrighteousness because he is wholly righteous, and I, I hang on to him alone. Okay, verse 28, Paul talking about being an apostle. He says, him, that's Jesus, that's the Christ, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Okay? Warning everyone means saying unpopular stuff, Teaching everyone means saying stuff of which the people are ignorant at that time, but doing it in a wise way so that people aren't like, that guy's rude, and walk away. So, so him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may, we may present everyone mature in Christ. The focus is maturity. That each and every person will be as grown up as they can be in Christ. This doesn't mean you can't. Act like a lunatic when you watch football. You can. Within, within reason. But it does mean that understanding who you are in Christ, you will know because you have been taught and you will grow. You will receive it. That's the goal of Paul. Then he says this in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I believe in every church. On one hand, there are a bunch of people who are saying things like, if we just get out of God's way, he would grow this church. Yes, that's true. And then there are people who are like, if we just launch this program or do this thing, our church would grow. And, and yeah, that's true. There's a tension between these two values. God grows the church. The word is the means by which the church grows, and Christ is the image into which we are called to grow. But it ought to be the leadership and every believer's desire to toil and to struggle forward with God's energy that works within us that we may all be mature. Christians come into their Christian life asking all kinds of questions. How do I grow in the Christian life? Why should I join a church? What is God's word? What does maturity look like? Who is God? Are miracles for today? When will Jesus come back? 
What is God's will for my life? Should I call myself an environmentalist? Do I vote Democrat or Republican? Are all Democrats evil? Are all Republicans evil? Should I vote at all? What is right? How do I know I can trust the Bible? Who is the devil? And how do I know when he's talking or God's talking? And the answer that's so often presented to Christians is this. And this is what I want to I leave with you today as I, as I finish up. Okay? The answer cannot and should not be sit in church for 20 years and maybe you will learn this stuff. That should not be the answer. I believe, and I think our leadership, the elders, are convicted of this, that that is not good stewardship. The Bible says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And, and what that gels to, to me after six years here, what, what this, the, the, the great weight that I feel on my back for the church is this. No one who worships here should struggle with immaturity or with a lack of growth because the leaders have not said, here is how you grow. We will give you opportunity to grow. If people remain immature for years and years and years, and we investigate and find out that the reason that they have not grown in Christ is that they have just not done it, well, that's not on the leadership. But if the leadership fails to present opportunities to grow and a plan to grow and says, here's where you can go in your Christian life and here's what we'd like to do with you, then that's a giant failure on our part. So taking a stand on God's word, I'm going to propose that we build a path for development within our fellowship. And looking at the clock, I do not have time to lay it all out this morning. Uh, there are three or four more texts in the book of Acts, which are these updates where I'm going to expand on this more. But let me just point out a, a couple of things. There are marks of maturity presented in the scriptures. Teaching someone is not just a matter of dumping information into their mind. It requires patience and time they, they need to live those teaching out, teachings out in their life, but there's a definite trajectory of growth. And there are different stages of, of Christian growth. So often, the church functions this way. Oh, you've, you've accepted Christ. You've prayed to believe in, in Jesus. You, okay, we understand that you want to be part of this church. Do you want to be part of this church? Let's make you a member. Why don't you teach Sunday school? That fills me with fear. That's the blind leading the blind is what it is. If you have a pulse and a temperature you can lead, no. That's not what the scriptures teach. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, John addresses Christians at different levels of maturity. He says, I'm writing to you, little children. Who wants to be called a little child in their faith? And yet, that is the level of some people's understanding of the Christian life. And look at what he says. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. What does that tell me as I, as I read that? I think that if we, as, as believers, don't teach, and, and that those who are coming into our fellowship don't understand that forgiveness is a blessing of the gospel. And I don't mean forgiveness, you're forgiven. And, and it's like, oh, I get it, I'm forgiven. But you are thoroughly forgiven. 
every unrighteousness, every iniquity, every bit of guilt and condemnation and wrath is taken away from you, and God is for you because of Christ. Folks, that's the ground floor. That's little children. That's nursery school in the Christian life. That's not the big stuff. I'll tell you what, I've, I've met and sat with believers who've been believers for years and years and years, and they're like, I love the church, and I read the Bible, and then I'll talk with them, and they'll say things like, I pray that one day God can forgive me for, and I'm like, oh, you're not mature. If you don't know that God will forgive you, if, if you're not rock-solid confident of that, and I don't mean that, that you're like, what have, I, what have I done? I've messed up and panicking because something's just happened in your life. I don't mean like, you know, instantaneous recovery. I mean, if you're not looking back over the course of your life from a position of peace and saying, I am sure that I am forgiven, that's a lack of maturity, brothers and sisters. I'm writing to you fathers, he says in verse 13, because you've known him who is from the beginning. To me, I hear that and I think the fathers, those who are mature, they have a deep an abiding understanding of the forgiveness of God on their life, but they also understand the deep things. They know deep things about God and, and eternity and his character and his nature. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. They understand forgiveness, these young men, but they also understand how to fight back against sin in their lives. They understand. They understand that they can resist the devil and he will flee from them. They understand to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So often, those who are in this young men category in the church, those, those who've been around for a while and are teaching Sunday school or, or who are being considered for leadership, they, they enter into the church and because they've not been discipled, they enter into a point where they hide their ignorance out of fear that if one day they're discovered to be a sinner, people will think badly about them. Right? If you've been in the church for a while, maybe you know what I'm saying. Folks, if we're not building our church on this reality that everyone in the church is going to sin at some point, we're in serious trouble. If you're here and you're like, Pastor Keith's a good man and and boy, I can't imagine him sinning. I'll be so disappointed if he sins. We are in serious trouble. Because I can think of several sins in the last 72 hours. I'm serious. You know, if our, if our leadership is like we only respect the elders if their lives are perfect, we're in trouble. Jesus is the perfect one. We follow him. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let me sum it up like this. I have two more pages of notes in which I lay out some leadership uh, or, or transformational plan for training the church. Let me just let me say this. One, this is what I'm going to be talking about next week in Sunday school. So if you don't come to Sunday school and you're like, well, you know, I don't really know what's going on there, so why would I stop in? If you show up next week, you'll know as much as everybody else, except a couple of the elders, because we've been talking and talking and talking about this. But I'm going to lay out on the whiteboard with my markers and my bad handwriting, 
exactly where we want to go as leaders of the church and how we want this to touch ground. But let me say this. It is my desire that one day, I'm thinking about Rudy here and things that were said at his funeral, that one day, if it is my job to do your funeral, or it is your job to speak at mine, that we will say of each other, this was a person who was thoroughly Christian. This is someone who was sold out to Jesus and who had a life that he, he lived on mission and he preached the gospel though he wasn't a preacher. He, he, he trained people to follow Christ and to honor God's word. This was somebody who could be counted on to be on mission. My mentor said of this man, and when he said it, I thought, this is not bragging, and this is not flattery. He said, Rudy Schober was the most thoroughly Christian man I ever knew, and I thought, that is absolutely true. And this was not a guy who made much of himself. He was just obedient. I want to be able to, at the end of my days, when my time comes to an end here at Harvest, or when my time comes to an end in this world, to be able to look back and to say, like Paul, at the believers that he had an opportunity to minister, you are my joy and my crown at the appearing of the Lord Jesus. I don't care how many people fill this church, although more is better, because more means more opportunity, but we're focusing on quality and not just quantity. It's not just having a thousand people in your church because you're dressing up like Superman. Any rock star can do that and draw a crowd. They, they, they do far better at drawing crowds than churches do. Real, deep, doctrinal, and behavioral maturity is the focus. Because faithfulness over the long haul is more pleasing to God than flash in the pan, big numbers ministry. Because God is not in a hurry. It took him 2,000 years to lay out his salvation plan, and he's been working it for 2,000 years. And so we shouldn't be in a hurry either, trying to get everything done every single week, sacrificing quality for quick results of flashiness. Because God is less concerned about how much we do if we don't do it in the way that he called us to, and that's in a loving way. Because positioning ourselves for the blessing of God through the Spirit is better than trying to be the blessing of God because apart from Him, we can do nothing. Ultimately, the way that we minister as a church ought to be by God's design and not by our own. Because the gospel is the only thing that can change a heart. And the gospel is the only thing that can change a family. And the gospel is the only thing that can change a nation. And that's why God has called the church to take the gospel out into the world. Come to Sunday school next week for more. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to speak to my brothers and sisters. Uh, I have said many things this morning. Uh, and I confess, I, I close with the, with the hope that your spirit will drive home to each who needs to hear exactly what they need to hear. Father, nothing changes about our mission based on, on what I've said this morning. We just, we want to focus 
like a laser, like a heat-seeking missile on your will and your way and your mission in the world. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters at all different levels of maturity. I confess I feel like an amateur so often. I pray that we would press into the goodness of the gospel and that we would seek to live dependent lives of humility as repentant sinners saved by your grace. May we present ourselves to you and say, Lord Jesus, what would you have us do? And then as we hear you speak in your word clearly, as you so often do, may we say, yes, Lord, and follow you. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has never put their faith and trust in you, the sacrifice which turns away wrath, the righteous lamb who cancels out every bit of guilt and who swallows up every ounce of wrath against us. Father, I pray that, that they would flee to Jesus, that they would run to him for strength and encouragement. And then I pray that they would share that commitment with somebody. Father, I pray for, for all the rest of us that we would come with a deep and humble desire to sink our roots deep into you and to turn away from, from serving ourselves and being satisfied with our own individual lives and instead turn to the church and to the mission that you have given us and say, what can I do for the glory of Christ in the church? Serving God's global purposes instead of our own personal particular purposes. May our heart beat like yours, Lord Jesus, we pray. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we draw to a close, there'll be some people up front here you can pray with. If you want to come forward, you can, you can also pray at the kneelers. But uh, let's close in worship now. I'm in love. 